We are up to Mishnah 5 of chapter 2. Until now, uh, every Mishnah has been a new, a new rabbi, a new scholar, a new sage. And this time we see Hillel, whom we met in chapter 1, and now we see him again in chapter 2 to tell us a collection of these very powerful lessons that we'll see. And he's actually going to give us Mishnah 6 and 7 and 8. So we have a lot of Hillel in our immediate future. We're going to uh, read his teaching, and then we'll go through a bit by bit. He begins, Al-Tifrosh Minatzibor. Hillel says, do not separate yourself, do not depart from the Tzibor, from the community. That's number one. Number two, Va'al ta'amin ba'atzmacha ad yomoscha. Don't believe in yourself, don't trust yourself until the day of your death. And do not judge your fellow until you have reached his place. Do not say something that is not possible to understand immediately on the grounds that it will in the end be understood. And finally, And do not say, quote, when I'm free, I will study. Perhaps you won't become free. So thus, we have five teachings from Hillel. Don't separate yourself from the community. Don't trust yourself until the day of your death. Don't judge your fellow until you arrive at his place. Don't say something that's somewhat obscure, that's hard to understand on the grounds that will be understood in the future. And finally, don't say, when I am free, I will study. I'm too busy now. But sometime in the future, I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll have plenty of time, and then I'll study. Because you know what? It's possible that that future time will never arrive. So it begins with not separating yourself from the public. And all the commentaries, of course, give their own flavor of what this means and what the lessons are. So simply put, when everyone's doing something good, join them. Obviously, this does not mean that when everyone's sinning, I should join with them as well. If I'm around by the golden calf, everyone's sinning. Rabbi, you told me that don't depart from the community. Of course, that's a proper place to depart from the community. What it means is, when everyone's doing a mitzvah, don't say, oh, I'm not joining. I'll do it later. Because there's a special power when a mitzvah is done with uh, great numbers. There's a famous verse, Berov Am Hadrasmelach, with multitudes of the nation, that's a glory for the king. If you have one person doing a mitzvah, that's fantastic. If there's 10 people doing the mitzvah together, even better, 100, 100,000, the larger the number, the greater the mitzvah. And now, there is, of course, one place where this is uh, most applicable, and that's with prayer. There's, of course, prayer done individually, and there's prayer done collectively. And when a prayer is done collectively, it's much more powerful, much more potent. In fact, the Talmud tells us that just like on the high holidays, on Rosh Hashanah Kippur, prayer is that much more potent. God is, so to speak, closer to us. Our ability to affect change is heightened during those times. Similarly, even throughout the year, that same ideal applies when prayer is done publicly versus privately. And even if a person may say correctly that, well, when I pray privately, I can really open up my heart to God. I can really expose my innermost feelings. And the prayer is so much more powerful. Here we're told... No, don't depart from the community, from the public, 
even if your prayer individually is more powerful, the fact that you're you're going to compromise something praying publicly, but what you're going to gain is going to outweigh what you're going to give up. So that's the first idea, to do mitzvos with everyone else. Even if it means you're going to have to sacrifice some of your own tranquility, some of your own peace of mind, study publicly and pray publicly. There's a story in the Talmud about one of the sages who was ill. And due to his illness, he was unable to travel to shul to join the community when they prayed. But he sent a messenger, go to the shul and notify me when they're praying. Because I want to pray, even though I can't pray together with them, I want to pray at the same time as them. And thus, the halacha tells us that even if someone is unable to pray with the public, with the tzibur, with the community, it's ideal if they could pray, if they have to pray privately, at least they should pray at the same time that the prayer is being done publicly because then, so to speak, they could piggyback their prayer on the prayer of the community. And now, the Chassid Yaivetz said something, he gives a whole list of applications of this principle, of, of participating with the public. And he says something interesting. He says, he gives a, a list, but amongst those lists, he says there's a repentance and charity, two examples that he brings. If the whole community is repenting or the whole community is supporting a cause, every member, every individual of the community should participate. So if let's say there is a, a, a public uh, arousal to repentance on whatever issue, then it should be Everyone should participate. Everyone should join in. I remember when I was in Israel, there was a member of our community. I didn't even really know him, but he lives in the same neighborhood, and he had brain cancer. So they made a convention. They got everyone that got together in the shul. What do we do? What do we spiritually advocate for him to that way? Maybe he should merit a a full recovery. And the rabbi got up and gave gave a speech saying, "Well, if someone has cancer in their brain, that's a sign of something that's not supposed to be in the brain." And therefore, he said, we should, he exhorted the community, let's try to get rid of all the stuff that shouldn't be in our brain from our brain. That's just one example. But the idea is, is that if everyone's getting together and participating in an effort for, to repent in whatever area or to improve whatever area, everyone should say, I'm, I'm joining a board. I'm, I'm part of the community. In addition, if everyone's getting together to support a charity, everyone should participate. And then he says something very scary. He quotes a midrash that says that people who don't participate in communal efforts to do good in whatever arena that may be, that those people are sinners. Moreover, he says something very harsh. He says, if someone does not participate in a communal effort to do good, when they die, their relatives shouldn't mourn them. Why? And this is, I'm quoting from, it's very scary. But he says, they shouldn't mourn, they should feast. Because someone doesn't participate when the community is doing something positive is an enemy of God. His word's not mine. And therefore, when they die, they should celebrate. Very, very harsh, biting criticism of someone who refrains from participating when the community does something good. That's uh, what we read in the Midrash. Rashi gives a generalistic interpretation of this. Uh, he says that when everyone's suffering... Suffer alone, alongside them. When everyone's rejoicing, then rejoice alongside them as well. 
I would say perhaps we could give a practical example. Don't be the one who cracks jokes at funerals or the one who's somber at a comedy event. Like if everyone's happy, everyone's joyous, try to join the community. Don't be the renegade. Don't be the outlier. Don't be the one who says I'm different. Don't be the contrarian just for contrarian's sake and saying I'm not participating what everyone else is participating in it. There's another realm of this principle, and that is with respect to judgment, specifically divine judgment. We know that we're judged, of course, in this realm by humans. We can be judged by a court. We can be judged by a Jewish court. We can be judged by a secular court. We can be judged by our friends. We can be judged by our enemies. We can be judged by humans. But in addition, we're told that there's we're judged by God. In fact, on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, those are called the days of judgment because we get judged by God. And we get judged collectively. We get judged individually. And if you look at the prayers and the liturgy and the philosophy of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, and in addition, all the sages and the commentators throughout the history, they would always stress that our goal on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is to be judged as part of a community, not to be judged as individuals. Why? As individuals, we all have flaws. And we all have holes in our character, our behavior, our ideals, our priorities, our values. All of us, if we're scrutinized, can find flaws with us, just like kind of the IRS. They go, they always get the mobsters on their tax, on their, on, on their tax reporting, on tax evasion. Because everyone has something. If you look hard enough, you'll find something. You look hard enough, you'll find something that's not reported or whatever. Similarly, with respect to how God judges us, if he looks hard enough to us as individuals, We'll find something. However, there is a pledge by God that the Jewish nation will always emerge meritorious Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, which is why the Midrash tells us right after Yom Kippur is done, we take the lulav and the esra, we take the, the branch and we shake it, we brandish it, says the Midrash, what's that like? It's like a victorious warrior returning from battle brandishing the sword up high. Similarly, the Jewish people went to battle, and every Yom Kippur we know, we're emerging victorious. Of course, to be part of the Jewish nation is sort of rocky. If you look at our history, chaotic, upheavals, dispersions, lots of mistreatment by our friends and uh, with friends like this who needs enemies. But as a whole, we're still around despite the odds because the Jewish nation will always survive. And therefore, our objective or our focus on Yom Kippur should be, on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur should be, how do I join the nation? How do I make sure that I earn the acquittal that's going to be given to the nation? I have to become part of the nation. Now, there's a mind-blowing teaching in the Talmud that if you just read it, it's totally inexplicable. It doesn't make any sense. But in this light, it makes a whole abundance of sense. The Talmud tells us in the end of the book of Yoma, Yom is a book that deals with Yom Kippur. It says something that appears completely odd. If someone, if a man sees a seminal emission on Yom Kippur, he will die that year. But if he doesn't, he should know that he's completely righteous. That's what the Talmud tells us. Seems very odd, very strange. And my grandfather explained it beautifully. We know that in Yom Kippur, there is prohibitions, there's five prohibitions of, of pleasures that we're not allowed to partake in. 
eating, drinking, washing, smearing ourselves with oils. And one of them is to not engage in marital intimacy. It's to refrain from carnal pleasure. Well, someone who sees a seminal mission Yom Kippur is someone who is not participating in what the whole, the whole community, community is suffering. The whole community is withholding from pleasure. And this person is saying, you know what? I'm not withholding from pleasure. Therefore, they are excluding themselves from the community, from the public. And therefore, because they're not participating in the suffering, so to speak, in, in the affliction that the community is partaking in, therefore, they're judged as individuals. And therefore, they're going to die that year because how could and most individuals can't withstand the scrutiny of being judged alone. But however, if, if they don't don't die that year, they should know that they're completely righteous because they, they were able to withstand the scrutiny as an individual. A fascinating explanation uh, from my grandfather of this Talmud uh, and this ideal that we want to be part of the community because it saves us from being judged as individuals and it'll ensure that we are acquitted in judgment. What's the next teaching of the Mishnah? The next teaching of the Mishnah is don't believe in yourself until the day you die. So the Rambam connects these two teachings together. Don't depart from the public and don't believe in yourself until the day you die. Says the Rambam, what does this mean? If the whole community is studying, and what do you say? You say, yeah, I got this. I'm an expert at this. I don't need to study with them. I've mastered this topic or this skill. Everyone's studying the laws of Shabbos. I study the laws of Shabbos very intensely. I know them. I don't need to partake in it. Says the Rambam, don't believe. What does the next teaching of the Mishnah say? Don't believe yourself until the day you die. You have to realize that there's a certain fallibility that we have as humans. We we can't be sure that whatever status we've attained, we will retain it forever. And therefore, join the community when they're doing something. Don't say that, oh, you've mastered it because how could you be sure that you won't lose it? That's the general idea is that don't trust in yourself because whatever you have today, whatever you've achieved, you may lose it. And therefore, until you're dead, you can't be guaranteed that you're not going to lose it. This this idea, just very, very powerful, very scary, that we can't be certain in whatever status we have. We don't know for sure that whatever we have, we won't lose. And the reason for that is, of course, is that we have a Yetzahara. We have an evil inclination. And the evil inclination is relentless. It is unyielding. It doesn't give up. There's a fascinating Midrash in Psalms, Midrash Tehillim, on Psalm 34, the Midrash gives us an illustration of the Yetzirah of the evil inclination and, and its relentlessness. It contrasts it. You, you have someone, you meet someone for an hour. What happens when two humans meet and they get to know each other? Almost invariably, they'll become friends. That's just the nature of human interaction. Almost, if they meet each other, they spend some time together, they'll become friendly. That's humans. What about the evil inclination? Evil inclination, we're told in the Talmud, has been with us since we were born. Since the day that we arrived into this planet, we've had a Yetzirah. So we've been in companionship with the Yetzirah our whole lives. And does he love us? 
Is he friendly with us? Absolutely not. Says the Midrash. He's always scheming for ways to make us falter, to make us suffer, to make us have miscues, to make us have missteps. And if he doesn't succeed until, at the time we're 20, he'll continue until the time we're 40. And if he doesn't succeed when we're 40, he'll continue to try till we're 70 or even 80. Concludes the Midrash. Is there any enemy that we have in our lives as tenacious, as relentless as this one? We can win over the Yitzhara 150 times. Does he throw up the white flag of surrender and give up? Never. And therefore, how can we trust in ourselves until the day we die? If you trust in yourself before you're out of the arena, before your Yitzhara is removed from you, you're essentially allowing the Yitzhara to overcome you. Because the second you get complacent, the second you rest on your laurels, the second you allow the Yetzirah to come at you and you're not resisting or, relent- or combating his efforts, well, you're probably going to lose because he's still there and he doesn't give up until the day you die. And therefore, you can't give up until the day you die either. Now, all the commentaries bring an episode of Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan was a great rabbi and a great sage and a Kohen who spent 80 years as the Kohen Gadol, as the high priest. And towards the end of his life, he became a heretic. He became a Sadducee. And therefore, he's always the prime example of someone who could be at the peak of the spiritual world, the spiritual leader of the nation, the righteous highest leader of the Jewish people and at the end of his life, before he died, falter and become a heretic and lose everything that they that he had accomplished. Just as an aside, how did this happen? How did the great high priest become a heretic? And the answer is, is because he wanted to help the heretics. He said, I'm going to reach out to them. I'm going to befriend them so that I can influence them. But what actually happened was, is that they influenced him, and he didn't influence them, which shows us, again, the perils of exposing yourself to danger and willfully encountering evil and saying, oh, I I know I'm secure. I won't succumb. He trusted himself a little bit before he died, and his trust was misplaced. There is a statement that we say, that life is like a running up a descending escalator. The default is that you're going to regress. You're going to descend. You're going to lose your spiritual acuity, your spiritual power, your spiritual purity. But if you work hard, if you resist, then, then you'll stay in the same place. You won't drop. You have to work really, really, really hard to ascend to higher levels. But just to maintain your status, you have to work. The second someone trusts in themselves then they start to fall down and regress. So that's the first idea here, is that we can't trust ourselves because we always have the specter of the Yetzirah looming above us. And if we don't have the mindset of resistance and overcoming, we're going to start regressing. That's number one. There's another idea here. It's uh, couched in a terrifying and inspiring story that, 
with one decision, we could really, it really have lifelong consequences. It's not necessarily that it takes a thousand decisions to affect what happens to someone's life. With even one decision, we could really kill the potential greatness that's latent within us. And this is what I heard from my grandfather. He writes in one of his books, a teaching or, or, or a story that he heard from Rabbi Yechastel Sarna, who was the head of the yeshiva in Hebron. Hebron is one of the biggest yeshivas in the world, maybe the third or fourth biggest yeshiva in the world in Jerusalem. And he said, this great rabbi, this great head of the yeshiva, that when he was young, he heard a Musr talk, a Musr vad, from one of the heads of the, of, of the Musr movement in that time. And his whole life, this idea was ringing in his ears. It was buzzing within him. One of the giants of the, of the generation, one of the greatest Torah sages of the generation, got married very young. And he married the daughter of a man who had a flour mill. That's what was his business. He had a flour mill, grinding wheat to turn it into flour. And after he got married, he was studying Torah with great diligence and assiduousness. And one time, his father-in-law needed some help in the flour mill. And he said, you know what? I'm going to hire my prodigious son-in-law to work with me in the flour mill. The son-in-law studying Torah like with incredible diligence, and he refuses the job. He refuses the job. I'm not interested. I'm going to continue studying. And the Musar Vad went on to say, well, let's see what would have happened to this individual had he accepted the job, had he yielded to his father-in-law's request. Well, he would have joined the flour mill, and that would have been his job, and he would have taken over for his father-in-law, and that would have been his business. Certainly, he would study Torah every day, of course. He wouldn't, you know, he would still be religious, etc., but he wouldn't have become a great Torah giant. And what would have happened after he died? He would get up to heaven, and he gets there for the accounting and the reckoning before God, and he comes up there, and he he's an he lived a good life and a nice family. The flower mill was so was successful. He also studied Torah a little bit. Seems like he's ready to go. He gets up before God, and God says to him, "You killed the giant of the generation. You killed the greatest Torah sage of the generation." And the guy's going to say, "What? I, I I didn't kill anyone. I can't even kill a fly." How could you possibly accuse me of this horrific crime? And they would tell him. They would say, no, you killed the greatest Torah sage of the generation. Why? Because you remember once when you were, you were a teenager. You were a young boy. You studied with great potential. And then you became a flour mill operator. But had you continued studying you would have reached the absolute pinnacle of Torah greatness. And because you accepted this job, you effectively killed that great Torah sage. It doesn't exist because of your inaction. That was the content of this vad, of this Musr lesson that this Rosh Hashiva had heard. The lesson is that we don't know necessarily the impact of our, of our actions. And it's possible with one action that sets us on a certain course that we're going to follow for the rest of our lives. 
And therefore, we're told here to, be, to have uncertainty. Don't believe in yourself. Because who knows? If you're so confident in your decision, it's possible you're making a grievous mistake. You don't even realize it at the time. But in hindsight, or certainly in God's purview, he sees everything and all possible angles of every decision and all possible permutations of those decisions. And therefore, your decision that you think is somewhat innocuous Listen, could you blame someone for trying to, for getting a, an honest living? Of course you can't. And we can't make that judgment. But God can. Our perspective and God's perspective are different. And I think that's exactly what the Mishnah is telling us. Don't believe in yourself the day you die because who knows how God sees it. Maybe God sees it very differently than you do. There is a similar story to this that is, I think it's a, it's a more famous one. It's told about the Nitziv. The Nitziv, Rabbi Nitziv is an acronym for Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, who was one of the most influential rabbis of the 19th century, 1817 to 1893. He was the head of the yeshiva in Volozhin. Volozhin is considered the mother of all yeshivos, and he was the head of the Russian yeshiva for 50 years. And he also was the author of many great Torah books, the first of which, maybe his most famous one, or maybe his most influential one, is what's called the Hamik Shaila. The Hamik Shaila. Hamik Shaila is a commentary on the Sheiltos de Rabbi Chai Goin. Sheiltos de Rabbi is one of the first Torah books written after the Talmud. After the era of the Talmud concluded, there was basically a lull in, in Torah writing for hundreds of years. But Rav Achai Gon, one of the Gaon and one of the heads of the yeshiva in Sur and Pupadisa in Babylon, he wrote a book called Sheiltos. Sheiltos is the word for questions. And essentially it's broken down into the books of, into the parshas of the Torah. And it's a question on each parsha with a whole essay which gives a flavor of the parsha with some halachos. It's a book, one of the first books written after the Talmud. And in 19th century, this Rosh Hashiva, the Nitziv, he wrote a commentary on the ha- uh, on the Sheiltos of Rabbi Chaiton called the Hamet Shiloh. And to celebrate this publication, he made a feast, as is sometimes uh, customary. And he gave, by this feast, he gave a talk. And he said in this talk a story that happened to him. He said when he was a young child, he was 11 or 12 years old, he was not very successful in his Torah studies. He was obviously a very precocious young mind and very able, but he was interested in other things. He didn't want to study so much. And, of course, at the time, it was customary if a child doesn't succeed in their Torah learning, at a very young age, they would send them to, to work, to work in whatever, whatever uh, field uh, they can make a living but it was quite customary for children 12, 13 years old. They're done with studies and they go work. And he overheard his parents discussing what to do with this young child who doesn't want to study Torah. Obviously, he doesn't have a career in Torah ahead of him. Let's set him up as an apprentice for the local shoemaker. You know, let him have a decent living as a shoemaker. And he's listening in to his parents talking about him. And he gets very emotional about it. And he goes over to his parents and says, give me one more chance. Let me prove my worth. And eventually he marries into one of the great rabbinical families. And he eventually heads 
the greatest yeshiva of the time for 50 years. He has tens of thousands of students. All, all of the great uh, young rabbis of the 20, of the 19th and early 20th century are his disciples. And he wrote not only the Hamad Shaila uh, on the Sheiltos, but the Hamad Davar, other books. And he became a great genius and great Torah sage. But he says to them, he says, well, he says during the speech, dur- during this publication celebration, he says, well, what would have happened had I not been inspired by this episode and I became a shoemaker? Well, as the previous story says, I would have gone, this is him talking about himself, I would have got, gone up to heaven after I died. And I'd be interviewed by God, debriefed by God. And they say, okay, what are your accomplishments? You lived life. God gave you life. What do you, what do you accomplish? What do you have to show for yourself? And it'll show like this amazing shoe, very well built and a nice, like built with very rugged leather. And look how stylish it is. And this kind of shoe and that kind of shoe. And they'll say to them, well, well where's your Hamid Shaila? He says, what's a Hamid Shaila? I have no idea what that is. Well, it's a it's a commentary on the Sheiltos Rabbi Chayyon. It's the whole Satan. I don't know what what's the Sheiltos and who is Rabbi Chayyon. That's his story, and he says that this one episode inspired him, and otherwise, who knows what would have happened to him? Because God demands from a person what they could have accomplished given the skills and the abilities that they were that they and the circumstances of their lives, and therefore he's kind of inspiring the listeners and, and us today, you know, 150 years later, to, when we're talking about this story, inspiring us to try to maximize what we can achieve with whatever God gave us and not sell ourselves short and not arrive to God with just shoes when we could have written publications on Torah. That, of course, is very terrifying for us because we're not existing post facto and we're very uncertain. Did we make the right decisions in our lives? And that's what we're told in this Mishnah. Don't believe in yourself the day you die because who knows how much one choice, one decision could really be a, a pivotal juncture in your life and you don't even know about it. I, I think there's also a, a positive element to this. The Talmud tells us that if someone is wicked their whole lives, but the day before they die, they repent. And therefore they die in repentance. Says the Talmud, when that person gets before God, they are not reminded of any of their previous misdeeds, which I think is a, is a, is a positive spin on this. We shouldn't judge, we shouldn't be confident until the day we die, but we shouldn't be despondent until the day we die either. Because so long as we're alive, so long as we have opportunity, we still could achieve whatever greatness that is still possible. Of course, once you're dead, that's it. The, 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 the opportunities are over, but until today that you're, that you're dying, A, don't be confident that you made the right decisions, but don't be despondent that you made the wrong ones because you still have time to rectify whatever it is. So I think that's the flip side of it. That gives us always an opportunity, so long as we're alive, to make sure that we make the best out of our situation from here, henceforth, un- until we die, and we can achieve our greatness yet. This great Rabbi Yochanan, who was the high priest, he was the high priest. He was the spiritual leader of the people. But you know what? At the end, he floundered. And it could be the opposite. There's many stories in the Talmud where it tells about people who lived lives of of sin, people who were evil, people who were murderers, people who were so immersed 
in promiscuity. And the day that they died, they turned it all around. And they were granted a, a spiritual uh, lease on life because they ended on the positive note, they ended with repentance. Until we leave this world, our story has not yet been cemented. Our legacy has not yet been cemented. Don't believe in yourself until the day you die, but don't give up on yourself until the day you die either. So that is some of the lessons of the second clause of the mission. Don't believe in yourself until the day that you die. The third thing is don't judge your fellow until you arrive in his place. As we're told, there's a famous idiom, don't judge another person until you've walked a mile in their shoes. And the idea here is it's all very much connected to the previous uh, teachings. So you may have, for example, we're told to participate in public activities that are positive. Don't depart from the community. Well, sometimes you look at the community and say, well, this guy, this gal, so-and-so, not for me. I don't want to join the community. I don't want, what's that line? I don't want to be part of any club that is okay having me as a member. There's that, there's that famous line. I don't want to be part of a club that has this and this person as a member. And therefore, if everyone's praying, but this guy's there, or if everyone's repenting, that guy's there, I'm out. Therefore, we're told here, don't judge them. And that will enable you to fully embrace what the public is doing that is positive. And we know, of course, Hillel was the one who enshrined what's known as the golden rule. Do not unto others what you not what you don't want to be done unto you. When the prospective convert came to Hillel, says, teach me all of Torah while I'm balancing on one leg. Hillel said to him, this is the one core idea of Torah. Everything else is commentary. Go study it. What's that one thing? Love your fellow as yourself. So this is a very similar idea that we're told, don't judge someone else until, until you're in that same situation. We just treat them as yourself. Just like you afford yourself allowances and you have justification for your own behavior and you provide yourself a certain allowance of goodwill, treat him with the same, the same way, the same way. Just like you love yourself, love him. Just like you judge yourself favorably, judge him favorably. Don't judge him until you try to think, what would I do in his shoes? Just a, f- a few examples of how this could play out. It's always try to superimpose yourself into someone else's situation. So if someone did something bad to you, you know, there's some, there's an escalating tension between you and, and someone else, and you want to judge them for their behavior, ask yourself, well, what, how would you act if you did to him? Or if he did to you what you did to him, what would you do to him? And that way, you look at what he did to you and say, well, maybe I would do the exact same thing if he did to me what I did to him, I'd do to him what he did to me, which is a little bit of a tongue twister, but it means try to ask yourself, what would I do in his situation? And on the flip side, ask yourself, how would I feel if I was about to be the victim of what I'm about to do to him? And if you think yourself in terms of what it's like, what the other person's going through, try to see the world from their perspective and try to judge them as if you were judging yourself. Of course, just like you judge yourself favorably in most instances, it's very hard, in fact, to admit that you were wrong. Try to give that same 
allowance to your fellow and you probably judge them favorably too. And similarly, this, of course, extends to criticism. We, it's very easy for us, for us to critique others and to rebuke them for their behavior, but that should be done without, if it's, if it's done at all, it should be done with this in mind, that maybe if I was in their situation, I'd be even worse and not judging them until I think about what all the circumstances of their lives. And of course, by extension of that, it's not possible for me to know exactly what they're going through. And that, of course, makes my judgment of them necessarily incomplete. The commentaries, some of the commentaries bring the story uh, of Yeravam Benavat and King Solomon. King Solomon was the king of Israel after his father, King David, and he built the temple. But the Midrash tells us that he had many, many wives. In fact, we're told that Solomon had a thousand wives, quite a harem to manage. But the reason why he had so many wives was because he wanted to build alliances with all these other kingdoms in his vicinity. And one of the wives wanted to sabotage the newly built temple. And we know in the temple, there's been sacrifices every morning. And there's a fixed amount of time that you have to bring sacrifices. And what this woman did, she wanted to have Solomon sleep in. And then he'll miss bringing the sacrifice. So what did she do? She did some sort of contraption that made it look like it was still nighttime. And therefore, he slept in, and they missed one day of sacrifices. So Yeravam Benevat, Jerobam, who is going to lead the secession against Solomon's successor, he got up and he lambasted Solomon for missing one day of sacrifices. And then the commentaries bring, well, what, what happened with Yeravam Benevat? He was the one who severed the ten northern tribes from the temple. And thus, how many thousands of sacrifices did he disrupt? Yet he's willing to judge Solomon for missing out on only one sacrifice, which is, again, the irony. Don't judge others because who knows how much worse you may be. Finally, don't say something that's somewhat obscure with the intention, with the understanding, with the hope that it will be understood in the future. So what this actually means, all the commentaries have a little, slightly different take on it. Uh, Rashi, for example, says, don't postpone or delay or push off studying, saying you'll study later, which is very similar to the last clause of the Mishnah. Uh, Rashi also, and other commentaries as well, they present this idea with respect to secrets. Don't say something and say no one will hear it because someone in the end will hear it. And interestingly, this idiom that we say that the walls have ears, that is brought down by the commentaries that were a thousand years old. Say the exact same words. Oznayim la kosalim. There's ears to the walls. If you say a secret and you say no one will hear it, in the end, someone will hear it. And the Rambam, it looks like the Art Stroll commentary, the Art Stroll translation goes with the Rambam, who is giving us a lesson uh, to not shroud our statements and our teachings with so much obscurity. Don't say something. I'll say it with such nuance. In the end, they'll get it because you know what? Maybe they won't get it in the end. And finally, the last clause of the Mishnah, don't say, when I become free, I'll study. Maybe I won't become free. And this is, of course, 
simply understood. Don't say, oh, in the future, after college, after my job, after my schooling, after my after I finish the game, after after, 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 then I'll study, then I'll do what's right, because you know what? That time may never happen. There's no time like the present to accomplish whatever it is that we're brought here to do. So that concludes a magnificent, amazing teaching from Hillel. Some of these lessons, of course, are a little bit scary. Some of them refer to our death. Don't believe in yourself to the day that you die. Don't say, I'll study before I die, because who knows when that will happen. Don't separate yourself from the community. Don't judge your fellow into his, his place. And following these lessons, they, of course, if we do follow these lessons, will be able to live much richer spiritual lives, which is, of course, what we are here to do.